Today on Lawfare Noble. Last week, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence held its annual Worldwide Threats Hearing to hear testimony about the current security threats that face the United States and its allies. The committee heard from intelligence community leaders, including Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, William Burns, the Director of the CIA, Avril Haines, the Director of National Intelligence, General Paul Nakasone, the Director of the NSA, and Christopher Wray, the Director of the FBI. Broadly speaking, the year's assessment focuses on adversaries and competitors, critical transnational threats, and conflicts and instability. These categories often overlap, and one of the key challenges of this era is assessing how many various threats and trends are likely to intersect so as to identify where their interactions may result in fundamentally greater risk to our interests than one might otherwise expect, or where they introduce new opportunities. And the 2022 annual threat assessment highlights some of these connections as it provides the IC's baseline of the most pressing threats to U.S. national interests. The assessment starts with threats from key state actors, beginning with the People's Republic of China, which remains an unparalleled priority for the intelligence community, and then turns to Russia, Iran, and North Korea. And all four governments have demonstrated the capability and intent to promote their interest in ways that cut against U.S. interests and allied interests. The PRC is coming ever closer to being a peer competitor in areas of relevance to national security, is pushing to revise global norms and institutions to its advantage, and is challenging the United States in multiple arenas, but particularly economically, militarily, and technologically. China is especially effective at bringing together a coordinated whole-of-government approach to demonstrate its strength and to compel neighbors to acquiesce to its preferences, including its territorial and maritime claims and assertions of sovereignty over Taiwan. President Xi Jinping and China's other leaders are determined to force unification with Taiwan on Beijing's terms. China would prefer coerced unification that avoids armed conflict, and it has been stepping up diplomatic, economic, military pressure on the island for years to isolate it and weaken confidence in its democratically elected leaders. And at the same time, Beijing is preparing to use military force if it decides this is necessary. The PRC is also engaged in the largest ever nuclear force expansion and arsenal diversification in its history is working to match or exceed U.S. capabilities in space and present the broadest, most active, and persistent cyber espionage threat to U.S. government and private sector networks. Russia, of course, also remains a critical priority and is a significant focus right now in light of President Putin's recent and tragic invasion of Ukraine, which has produced a shock to the geopolitical order with implications for the future that we are only beginning to understand but are sure to be consequential. The IC, as you know, provided warning of President Putin's plans, but this is a case where I think all of us wish we had been wrong. The invasion has, in fact, proceeded consistent with the plan we assessed the Russian military would follow, only they are facing significantly more resistance from the Ukrainians than they expected and encountering serious military shortcomings. Russia's failure to rapidly seize Kyiv and overwhelm Ukrainian forces has deprived Moscow of the quick military victory that probably had originally expected would prevent the United States and NATO from being able to provide meaningful military aid to Ukraine. Moreover, we assess Moscow underestimated the strength of Ukraine's resistance and the degree of internal military challenges we are observing, which include an ill-constructed plan, morale issues, and considerable logistical issues. 
What is unclear at this stage is whether Russia will continue to pursue a maximalist plan to capture all or most of Ukraine, which we assess would require more resources, even as the Russian military has begun to loosen its rules of engagements to achieve their military objectives. And if they pursue the maximalist plan, we judge it will be especially challenging for the Russians to hold and control Ukrainian territory and install a sustainable pro-Russian regime in Kyiv in the face of what we assess is likely to be a persistent and significant insurgency. And of course, the human toll of the conflict is already considerable and only increasing. Thus far, the Russian and Ukrainian militaries have probably suffered thousands of casualties along with numerous civilian deaths. And of course, well more than a million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded. Moreover, Russian forces are at the very least operating with reckless disregard for the safety of non-combatants as Russian units launch artillery and airstrikes into urban areas as they have done in cities across Ukraine and near critical infrastructures such as the Enerhodar nuclear plant. And the IC is engaged across the interagency to document and hold Russia and Russian actors accountable for their actions. The reaction to the invasion from countries around the world has been severe. Western unity in imposing far-reaching sanctions and export controls as well as foreign commercial decisions are having cascading effects on the Russian economy. The economic crisis that Russia is experiencing is also exacerbating the domestic political opposition to Putin's decision to invade. And NATO's unified response, the significant resistance that the Ukrainians have demonstrated in the battlefield, Europe's rapid response to Russia's invasion, not just in terms of economic measures, but also actions long thought to be off the table, such as the provision of lethal aid to Ukraine, shutting down EU airspace to Russian planes, almost certainly surprised Moscow. In particular, while Putin probably anticipated many of the current sanctions to be imposed while he, when he weighed the cost of the invasion, we judged that he did not anticipate either the degree to which the United States and its allies and partners would take steps to undermine his capacity to mitigate Western actions, or the pullback from Russia initiated by non-state actors in the private sector. And nevertheless, our analysts assess that Putin is unlikely to be deterred by such setbacks and instead may escalate, essentially doubling down to achieve Ukrainian disarmament and neutrality to prevent it from further integrating with the US and NATO if it doesn't reach some diplomatic negotiation. We assess Putin feels aggrieved the West does not give him proper deference and perceives this as a war he cannot afford to lose but what he might be willing to accept as a victory may change over time given the significant costs he is incurring. Putin's nuclear saber rattling is very much in line with this assessment. Putin's public announcement that he ordered Russia's strategic nuclear forces to go on special alert in response to aggressive statements, as he called them, from NATO leaders was extremely unusual. We have not seen a public announcement from the Russians regarding a heightened nuclear alert status since the 1960s, but we also have not observed force-wide nuclear posture changes that go beyond what we have seen in prior moments of heightened tensions during the last few decades. Our analysts assess that Putin's current posturing in this arena is probably intended to deter the West from providing additional support to Ukraine as he weighs an escalation of the conflict. Putin probably still remains confident that Russia can militarily defeat Ukraine and wants to prevent Western support from tipping the balance and forcing a conflict with NATO. And regardless, our number one intelligence priority is defense of the homeland, and we will remain vigilant in monitoring every aspect of Russia's strategic nuclear forces. With tensions this high, there is always an enhanced potential for miscalculation, unintended escalation, which we hope our intelligence can help to mitigate. Furthermore, beyond its invasion of Ukraine, Moscow presents a serious cyber threat, a key space competitor, and one of the most serious foreign influence threats to the United States. 
Using its intelligence services, proxies, and wide-ranging influence tools, the Russian government seeks to not only pursue its own interests, but also to divide Western alliances, undermine U.S. global standing, amplify discord inside the United States, and influence U.S. voters and decision-making. And to finish with our state actor threats, Iran continues to threaten U.S. interests as it tries to erode U.S. influence in the Middle East, entrench its influence and project power in neighboring states, and minimize threats to regime stability. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-un continues to steadily expand and enhance Pyongyang's nuclear and conventional capabilities, targeting the United States and its allies, periodically using aggressive and potentially destabilizing actions to reshape the regional security environment in his favor and to reinforce his status as a de facto nuclear power. The assessment focuses next on a number of key global and transnational threats, including global health security, transnational organized crime, the rapid development of destabilizing technologies, climate, migration, and terrorism. And I raise these because they pose challenges of a fundamentally different nature in our national security than those posed by the actions of nation states, even powerful ones like China. We look at the Russia-Ukraine war and can imagine outcomes to resolve the crisis, the steps needed to get there, even though they are unpalatable and difficult. And similarly, we view the array of challenges Chinese actions pose and can discuss what is required and how we think about trade-offs. But transnational issues are more complex, require multilateral collaboration, and although we can discuss ways of managing them, all of them pose a set of choices that will be more difficult to untangle and will perhaps require more sacrifice to bring about meaningful change. This reflects not just the interconnected nature of the problems, but also the significant impact increasingly empowered non-state actors have on the outcomes, and the reality that some of the countries who are key to mitigating threats posed by nation states are also the ones we will be asking to do more in the transnational space. And for example, the lingering effects of the COVID-19 pandemic is putting a strain on governments and societies, fueling humanitarian and economic crises, political unrest, geopolitical competition as countries such as China and Russia, seek to exploit the crisis to their own advantage. And no country has been completely spared. And even when a vaccine is widely distributed globally, the economic and political aftershocks will be felt for years. Low-income countries with high debts face particularly challenging recoveries and the potential for cascading crises that lead to regional instability, whereas others will turn inward or be distracted by other challenges. These shifts will spur migration around the world, including on our southern border. The economic impact has set many poor and middle-income countries back years in terms of economic development and is encouraging some in Latin America, Africa, and Asia to look to China and Russia for quick economic and security assistance to manage their new reality. We see the same complex mix of interlocking challenges stemming from climate change, which is exacerbating risks to U.S. national security interests across the board, but particularly as it intersects with environmental degradation and global health challenges. And terrorism, of course, remains a persistent threat to U.S. persons and interests at home and abroad, and yet the implications of the problem are evolving. In Africa, for example, where terrorist groups are clearly gaining strength, the growing overlap between terrorism, criminal activity, smuggling networks has undermined stability, contributed to coups, and an erosion of democracy and resulted in countries turning to Russian entities to help manage these problems. Global transnational criminal organizations continue to pose a direct threat to the United States through the production and trafficking of lethal illicit drugs, massive theft, including cybercrime, human trafficking, and financial crimes and money laundering schemes. In particular, the threat from illicit drugs is at historic levels, with more than 100,000 American drug overdose deaths 
for the first time annually, driven mainly by a robust supply of synthetic opioids from Mexican transnational criminal organizations. In short, the interconnected global security environment is marked by the growing specter of great power, competition, and conflict, while transnational threats to all nations and actors compete not only for our attention, but also our finite resources. And finally, the assessment turns to conflicts and instability, highlighting a series of regional challenges of importance to the United States. Iterative violence between Israel and Iran, conflicts in other areas, including Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, have the potential to escalate or spread, fueling humanitarian crises and threatening US persons. Africa, for example, has seen six irregular transfers of power since 2020 and probably will see new bouts of conflict in the coming year as the region becomes increasingly strained by a volatile mixture of democratic backsliding, intercommunal violence, and the continued threat of cross-border terrorism. We are also focused on our workforce and their families. The IC continues to contribute to the government-wide effort to better understand potential causal mechanisms of anomalous health incidents and remains committed to ensuring afflicted individuals receive the quality care they need. The safety and well-being of our workforce is our highest priority, and we are grateful to members of this committee for your continued support on this issue. In closing, I just want to note how much effort has gone into improving our capacity to share intelligence and analysis with our partners and allies across the intelligence community. We have seen in our approach to the threat to Ukraine, the sharing of intelligence and analysis has paid real dividends in helping to facilitate collective action against the renewed threat of nation-state aggression. And while such efforts must be done with care to ensure we are able to protect our sources and methods, we are laying the groundwork to broaden our work where doing so creates the conditions for a more united focus on other emerging challenges. And we appreciate your support in these efforts as well. Uh, Director Burns, you've dealt with Putin for many years. Um, first of all, what's your assessment of how many Russian soldiers have thus far been killed uh, and how many injured? Uh, and based on your experience uh, with Putin, what would it take to change Putin's calculus in Ukraine? <clears throat> well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, I think Putin is determined to dominate and control Ukraine to shape its orientation. Um, you know, this is a matter of deep personal conviction for him. He's been stewing in a combustible combination of grievance and ambition for many years. Um, that personal conviction matters more than ever in the Russian system. He's created a system in which his own circle of advisors is narrower and narrower. COVID has made that even narrower. Um, and it's a system in which it's not proven career enhancing for people to question or challenge his judgment. So he's gone to war, I think, on the basis, Mr. Chairman, of a number of assumptions which led him to believe that he faced, that Russia faced, a favorable landscape for the use of force against Ukraine this winter. First, that Ukraine, in his view, was weak and easily intimidated. Second, that the Europeans, especially the French and Germans, were distracted by elections in France and a leadership succession in Germany and risk averse. Third, he believed he had sanctions proofed his economy um, in, in the sense of creating a large war chest of foreign currency reserves. And fourth, he was confident that he had modernized his military and they were capable of a quick, decisive victory at minimal cost. Um, he's been proven wrong on every count. Those assumptions have proven to be profoundly flawed over the last 12 days of conflict. President Zelensky, as, as you've mentioned, Mr. Chairman, as the ranking member mentioned, um, has risen to the moment and demonstrated courageous and remarkable leadership, and Ukrainians have resisted 
fiercely. Um, second, um, the Europeans have demonstrated remarkable resolve, um, especially the Germans. Third, uh, the economic consequences of the sanctions which have been enacted so far are proven to be devastating for Russia, especially against the Russian central bank, um, depriving Putin of the ability that he assumed he'd have to defend the ruble. And fourth, his own military's performance has been largely ineffective. Instead of seizing Kiev within the first two days of the campaign, which was what his plan was premised upon, after nearly two weeks, they still have not been able to fully encircle the city. And so, you know, Putin has, has commented privately and publicly over the years that he doesn't believe Ukraine's a real country. Well, he's dead wrong about that. Real countries fight back. And that's what the Ukrainians have done quite heroically over the last 12 days. Um, as you said, Mr. Chairman, I think Putin is angry and frustrated right now. He's likely to double down and try to grind down the Ukrainian military with no regard for civilian casualties. But the challenge that he faces, and this is the biggest question that's hung over our analysis of his planning for months now, as the director, as Director Haynes said, is he has no sustainable political endgame in the face of what is going to continue to be fierce resistance from Ukrainians. So I think that's what his calculus um, has been, and I think that's the reality of what he faces today. In terms of casualties, I know General Barry may want to comment on that, but there have been far in excess Russian military casualties killed and wounded, far in excess of what he anticipated. Because his military planning and assumptions was premised on a quick, decisive victory, um, and uh, that has not proven to be the case. Director Barry, are you, are you able to comment on that? And also, um, this massive column uh, heading toward Kiev, now maybe two massive columns, um, public reports suggest that they've run out of fuel. Um, are we learning that the Russian military is uh, far less competent than we imagined? Um, how do you assess their performance thus far? Chairman, I, I think the, uh, the Russian army reformed into this thing we call the New Look Army. And they, they task organized themselves into smaller battalion tactical groups and Fundamentally, that, that is not a bad uh, construct. I think they had a bad plan, and I think their <clears throat> logistic support is not what it needs to be to, uh, to develop the situation that they wanted to do. And we, we can go into much more detail on that in, in the closed session. Are you, are you able to say in open session how many uh, Russian troops have been killed? With, with low confidence, uh, somewhere between two and 4,000. That number comes from some intelligence sources, but also open source and uh, how we pull that together. Um, Director Burns, whatever Putin's plan may have been on the way in, um, if that plan involved the, the installation of a puppet regime, that seems highly implausible now. Um, how does this end? Um, well, that's the core question, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, I think Putin's assumptions, as I said before, have turned out to be profoundly flawed. I failed to see, and our analysts failed to see, how he could sustain a puppet regime or a you know, pro-Russian leadership that he tries to install in the face of what is you know, massive opposition from the Ukrainian people. In many ways, it's been Putin's aggression going back to 2014 in Crimea that's created the strong sense of Ukrainian nationhood and sovereignty that he faces today. So I, I fail to see how he can produce that kind of an endgame. And where that leads, I think, is, is for an ugly next few weeks 
in which he doubles down, as I said before, with scant regard for civilian casualties, in which urban fighting can get even uglier. Because the one thing I'm absolutely convinced of, and I think our analysts across the intelligence community are absolutely convinced of, is the Ukrainians are going to continue to resist fiercely and effectively. Finally, um, either Director Ray or Director Nakasone, um, what do you anticipate uh, Russian, Russia might do to lash out the United States in the cyber realm? Um, and, uh, and to what degree do you think they can use cryptocurrency to evade uh, sanctions? So let me start uh, with a series of uh, scenarios, Chairman. Uh, as we take a look at it, uh, we're very, very focused on ransomware actors that, that might, uh, that might um, uh, conduct uh, attacks against our allies, our nation. Very, very focused on uh, some type of um, um, cyber activity that's designed for perhaps Ukraine that spreads more broadly uh, into other countries. Third is any type of uh, attack that, uh, that uh, an adversary would conduct against an ally. And then finally, certainly our critical infrastructure. Those are really the, the areas that we look at so carefully. It's done with a series of partners. It's interagency partners. It's, it's our partners that uh, exist in the private sector. It's with obviously a series of partners that are allied as well. But those are the scenarios that, that we certainly walk our way through. Uh, I would agree with that. I would just add two things, uh, perhaps. One is we're, we're very concerned about the risk of spillover effect. In other words, even if the Russians uh, think they have carefully calibrated some form of uh, malicious cyber activity against our critical infrastructure, uh, the reality is they've shown a history of not being able to kind of manage the effects of it uh, as well as they intend, even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, which I tend not to. Uh, so for example, the NotPetya attack uh, is kind of widely viewed as one of the most destructive attacks uh, in the history uh, of the world, and that's a GRU attack that, that had that kind of spillover effect. So that's something we're deeply concerned about. Uh, and then the second, uh, General Nakasone mentioned ransomware. Uh, obviously, we are concerned about cyber criminals, many of whom uh, are based in Russia, either acting in support of the Russian government, as we've seen, for example, the declaration by the well-known ransomware gang Conti declaring its intention to act in support of the Russian government against the Russian government's adversaries, uh, or who are taking advantage of perhaps the more permissive operating environment that now exists uh, in the middle of this conflict to, uh, to attack us in, through cyber criminal means. Um, so my question first to um, Director Haynes, Burns, and General Barrier relates to Vladimir Putin and his, his statements themselves. Um, he has stated uh, that if anyone entered the conflict that he would escalate, um, including uh, nuclear attacks as part of his exercises prior to entering into Ukraine. He included a nuclear weapons component. Uh, he's been very boisterous about uh, his modernization of his nuclear weapons and the new capabilities that, uh, that they're seeking, including the hypersonics, uh, which they, the Vanguard, which they now have deployed. So my first question to the three of you is, um, do you believe him? Do you believe that, that if the United States or its NATO allies uh, entered uh, this conflict to protect the innocents that Vladimir Putin is killing in this unprovoked act, uh, that it could escalate and that he would be willing to escalate this conflict uh, to a nuclear conflict. Uh, Director Haynes, Burns, and General Barrier. Thank you, Ranking Member Turner, and thank you for the way you've worked with us as well, by the way. I, um, I'd say 
we can obviously go into this in further detail in closed session, but as a general matter, um, you know, as I indicated, his public statement about the special alert status, which, by the way, is not a technical term as we understand it within their system, um, it doesn't uh, relate to a specific alert status within their system, was very unusual. And we obviously take it very seriously when he's signaling in this way. But we do think, as I indicated, assess that that he is effectively signaling, that he's attempting to deter, and uh, that he has done that in other ways, for example, having the strategic nuclear forces exercise that we indicated had been postponed until February begin then as a method of effectively deterring using his nuclear forces as a way to say this could escalate and therefore NATO should not get involved and that that's been his main purpose in doing so. And, you know, again, as indicated, we're watching very closely for movements, anything related to his strategic nuclear forces, and we're not seeing something at this stage that indicates that he is doing something different than what we've seen in the past. And I think that's probably as much as I could say, and I'll leave it to others. Now, the only thing I'd add, um, Congressman, is that you know, in, in response to your direct question about a scenario mm -hmm. in which NATO and the United States were directly involved in military conflict with Russia, you know, Russian doctrine holds that you, know, you escalate to de-escalate. And so I think the risk would rise, according to that doctrine, of uh, in extremis, you know, the Russian leadership considering uh, the use of tactical nuclear weapons. But I, I stress that that's only in that specific circumstance that you described of a direct military conflict between NATO and Russia. Just a couple of thoughts, Ranking Member. Um, Putin has invested very wisely in these niche weapons, and you, you mentioned some of them in your uh, opening statement. Um, I, I believe that he thinks that gives him uh, an asymmetric advantage, and he's also invested in tactical uh, nuclear weapons. I also believe that when he says something, we should listen very, very carefully and maybe take him at his word. So th this question is the one that analysts are pondering right now, and I, I think we, we uh, really need to do some more work on it. I'm happy to digest this more in the closed session. Uh, so I'm going to ask each of the three of you, um, you know, are you directly involved in the nuclear posture review, and what would your advice be, knowing that we now have uh, authoritarian regimes that are making opening statements, excuse me, open statements about um, threatening their neighbors, the use of nuclear weapons, uh, and Vladimir Putin changing um, you know, his, his posture, and China significantly investing in both their ICBM um, fields and in their hypersonics. Uh, what should we be doing with our nuclear posture review so that we can deter these authoritarian regimes in the future? Director Haynes, Burns, and General Barry. Thank you. So uh, my staff and Odie and I is involved in the nuclear posture review as am I in the context of principals meetings on these discussions. Our, our role, however, is not a policy role. So I don't provide and did not provide my advice uh, as to whether or not to take a particular posture in the, the review. Um, what we do is provide essentially the intelligence community's assessments on issues that were asked about in the context of that review. Before we go to Director Burns, would, would, would it be correct to characterize that, that likely your assessment is that the threat is increasing? That the threat is increasing generally, yes. I, I think that's fair. Director Burns. No, all I would add I absolutely agree that the threat is increasing, and I think our role is to try to provide insight from the intelligence community into 
the plans, the ambitions, the pace at which you know adversaries, whether it's China or Russia, can move on these issues. And all I would add is that I think it's very important for us not to underestimate the either the scope of those ambitions or the pace at which they can move. I think China and hypersonics is one example of that. Ranking member, I do believe that the threat is increasing. We are involved in the study, and, and our role is to, is to really provide the best foundational military intelligence we have related to these kinds of weapons, facilities, organizations, and doctrine that we can so that policymakers can, can make the right decision. Dr. Haynes and Burns, um, obviously people are very concerned about the negotiations ongoing with the JCPOA and the future nuclear threat uh, from Iran. Uh, concerns relate to uh, re-entering an agreement that had ver some flawed provisions, including um, not um, missiles were not encompassed in the original terms and that some very critical terms of the agreement were expiring. Can you give us any information about the ongoing uh, negotiations from the administration as to whether or not it's just re-enter the old agreement that is has expiring terms and does not cover their ability to seek ICBM technology, or are we undertaking actual negotiations uh, to try to reach a better agreement? Thank you, Ranking Member. I, we obviously, um, again, provide analysis that we hope is helpful to the policymakers in the conduct of the negotiations. I don't really have uh, you know, more information beyond the fact that they're obviously engaged in the negotiations and looking to do, I think, uh, what the president has indicated, which is to say both to deal with the nuclear file but also to deal with other issues that Iran has uh, been a destabilizing factor in. Uh, I'll leave it to others. Uh, the only thing um, I would add, sir, is that, you know, I having spent many years negotiating on these issues with the Iranians, which is probably where I got most of my white hair. Um, you know, I, my nostalgia is under control for those negotiations. They're incredibly difficult. And as Director Haynes said, you know, we always have to be mindful of the fact that the threat that this Iranian regime poses is not only about the nuclear issue or even the missile issue, as you rightly emphasized. It's also you know, a threat to our interests across the Middle East and the interests of our partners in the Middle East as well. And you know, regardless of, of how the negotiations over the JCPOA go, I think those challenges are still going to be with all of us. Thank you. I yield back. Thank the gentleman, Mr. Himes. What resources, what dedication, what plan, what strategy are you applying in your entities to help us win this fight. I know it's very hard to be specific, but the more you can give an Amer the American people a feel for what you are doing in this fight, we'd be very grateful to understand that. Director Haynes, and I would like to hear from uh, Director Burns as well. Thank you. I suspect you'd get a lot from everybody actually on the panel on this issue. I, we are, um, and I will try to find a way to, to characterize things, but I'm sure my colleagues will be better at this. I. Um, we obviously, first and foremost, want to be able to provide as much information about what's actually happening. And I think one of the challenges in the context of what's occurred is the fact that um, Russia and President Putin is clearly uh, promoting a particular narrative about what they're doing. And uh, one of the values, I think, of the intelligence community during this scenario has been that we've been able to expose that narrative as false and ultimately indicate that what they are promoting as a pretext for their war of choice is, in fact, just that, a pretext. And 
I think as we- Director, let me stop you there very quickly because I think this is an important point. Are they done with their false flag operations? What might we expect to see in that regard? Yeah, I think, as I was gonna say, I just think as this continues, we're gonna continue to see them essentially spinning narratives that are uh, false, and we hopefully can provide some credible voice of what is actually happening as we move forward. And I think that's both for their domestic population, but that's also for the international audience as well. And in many respects, as I indicated in my opening statement, one of the things that we are focused on is ensuring that we can provide as much information as possible to hold Russians accountable for the actions they're taking right now in Ukraine, doing things that I think are largely unacceptable to many. So I'll leave it at that and give it to Paul. No, all I, I, all I would add, sir, is that we have no higher priority as an agency right now than providing all the support that we can to the Ukrainians. Glad to talk about that more in closed session. In this session, I would just reinforce what um, Avril said, and that is that you know, I think you know, the work that we've done, and it's not without risk, as an intelligence community, uh, to declassify information has been very effective. I sat for many years on the policy-making side of the table, and I've seen us lose information wars. And in this case, I think, by being careful about this, we have uh, stripped away the pretext that Putin in particular often uses. That's been a real benefit, I think, to Ukrainians. It's been a real investment in the kind of actions that our allies have taken. The only other thing I'd add is that you know, we've done intensive intelligence sharing and we continue to with the Ukrainians, including when I saw President Zelensky in January in Kiev, we shared with him intelligence we had at the time about some of the most uh, graphic and uh, concerning details of Russian planning about Kiev as well. And, and we've continued to do that every day since then. What might we expect to see? What would it look like if the Russians continued to spin or run false flag operations? Um, no, I, I think as Director Haynes said, we're, they're going to continue to try to spin this and create false narratives. You've seen things that the Russians have said before, senior Russian officials alleging that there'd be chemical weapons attacks, for example, um, in the Donbass or elsewhere. And I think that just gives you a flavor of the kind of things that they could easily try to fabricate uh, or float in the future, particularly as they get more desperate about you know, their own, at least up until this point, relative military ineffectiveness. Thank you very much. I yield back. Dr. Winstrup. So my questions are, what have we learned over the last couple of years from our response to and preparedness or lack thereof for the COVID-19 global pandemic that could help inform our response in the future? And what steps are we taking either by ourselves or with our allies to ensure that we're able to fully investigate these matters should the need arise? Thank you very much. Uh, I'll start and others may have more to add, but I think, honestly, I think we've learned a lot, certainly in ODI and I and, and in the intelligence community on this issue. I, among the things that we've learned is the fact that um, we did not and still do not, frankly, have the internal expertise that we want to have on essentially bio issues, and that is something we're working hard to promote. And, uh, and we have developed things like um, uh, experts groups and so on that allow us to tap into expertise more easily in academia and uh, in the private sector and otherwise. But that is something that um, I think needs to be expanded and recruiting the right folks is a critical aspect of this. 
You've also set up in legislation the opportunity for public-private partnership talent programs, and that's something that we're trying to effectively uh, utilize. And um, I think having an opportunity for folks to go in and out is critically important. Um, we have also established uh, a national intelligence manager for health in, in this space, that um, health security that helps in this area. And I think uh, part of what we've been trying to do is make sure that we're drawing from across the IC, because in, in really an extraordinary number of elements, certainly everybody that you see here before you um, has expertise and knowledge and making sure that we can connect it together and be more effective and proficient in ultimately providing policymakers with an understanding of what's happening and also how it is that um, that may translate into biological warfare and other things that are obviously of, of great and core interest to us. So I'll stop there and let others say anything they have. Representative Weinstrup, I would just say DIA's role uh, in this is, is duty to warn. And so for the Department of Defense, we must have our eyes out, our ears out, and be able to, uh, to understand this when it happens. For, for us and the lessons that we have learned, uh, this is a really hard intelligence problem, and we have to be able to take advantage of all of the sources that are out there, and certainly open source tools to be able to get insight early um, has been very, very effective, and we're going to continue to develop those with our National Center for Medical Intelligence and continue to invest in those kinds of tools. I thank uh, you Mr. both. Yield back. Yes, sir. Mr. Winstrup, all, all I would add, as we've discussed before, is you know we, we've created a new mission center at CIA, which is focused largely on the question that you raised of emerging technologies, designed both to help policymakers um, you know, anticipate the pace at which our adversaries are moving, especially on issues like synthetic biology or biotechnology, and also to deepen partnership with the private sector so we better understand the pace of innovation in that area as well. Thank you very much. Yield back. Mr. Carson. Director Haynes, is support to U.S. grassroots groups still a part of the foreign malign influence playbook and which adversaries use it? And Director Ray, um, how do we stop foreign covert influence on grassroots activist groups without silencing legitimate political speech. Thank you. I'll be quick because I would say that the FBI's work in this area is obviously critical, but, uh, but yes, in the sense that we do see with foreign malign influence efforts to support particular groups within the United States at times, and those are links that we obviously focus in on and try to provide to uh, those parts of the government that are then able to act on issues. Uh, I think I would say that it uh, it does continue to be a phenomenon. We should expect it to continue to be a threat. Um, the Russians obviously were among the first to, to do it very aggressively, but we've seen other adversaries uh, get increasingly interested in taking a page out of that same playbook. Uh, we, of course, have the Foreign Influence Task Force that we set up that's designed to try to address uh, that. I think the key point to your question about balancing uh, is that our focus is on the malign foreign influence, not on the resulting speech. So sometimes I think people get confused about that, and I think that if we see some kind of aggressive activity here, grassroots or otherwise, that we're somehow reverse engineering back to figure out if it could be explained by some foreign source, the Russians, the Iranians, whoever. We actually go at it in reverse. We're aggressively investigating foreign intelligence services, their proxies, their... Uh, uh, social media accounts, things like that. And then if that then turns out to manifest itself in activity here, then we're going after it that way. We are not, and we don't intend to be, 
the speech or truth police, but we are aggressively working with foreign partners to identify foreign, malign foreign influence sources, uh, and where appropriate, we're sharing information with social media companies who can then uh, reduce the bullhorn effect of fake accounts that are actually you know, part of a Russian troll farm or, or in some other way uh, uh, inauthentic accounts. And we've actually done some of that in context of the current crisis with the Ukraine uh, at the Ukrainians' request to uh, work with social media companies to take down fake Russian accounts that are spreading uh, Ukrainian military disinformation. Thank you all. I yield back, Chairman. Mr. Stewart. Now, I wonder if any one of you would like to perhaps offer an, offer an explanation for why it was so important a year ago and yet doesn't make it into the report at all in this, in this most recent. Sure, I can start. I, so it is mentioned it's just under a, a, a separate name. You'll see it, we talk about racially or ethnically motivated violent extremism, and that is a form of, in many respects, domestic violent extremism obviously can occur in other places, but it also occurs domestically. And it, it does remain a problem, but I, I will turn to uh, Director Ray to talk about how much of a problem. Well, from the FBI perspective, domestic violent extremism, of course, is, is central to our mission, separate and apart from authorities that others in the intelligence community might have, and, and we're aggressively pursuing it, and it remains a, a very significant high priority. Director, uh, according to some open source reporting, the FBI purchased NSO spyware Pegasus in 2019 and evaluated the program under a name called Phantom. D can you confirm that you know, if that's, if that's true or not? Uh, what I can tell you is that the FBI has not and did not use uh, the NSO products uh, operationally in any investigation. I can confirm that we bought a limited license for testing and evaluation. So not used in any investigation of anyone, but rather as part of our routine responsibilities to evaluate technologies that are out there not just from a perspective of could they be used someday legally, but also more importantly, what are the security concerns raised by those products? So very different from using it to investigate so, anyone. So, so I understand that you did purchase a program and you tested it, is that accurate? We had a limited license for testing and evaluation. We've tested and evaluated and that's, did, that's did, over. It hasn't been the, used in any investigation of anyone. Did the FBI ever notify Congress of their intention to test this product? That I don't know the answer to. I can look into that. Uh, Please do, because sure uh, we're, we're unaware of any notification. And then <clears throat> why would we test a product such as that if you don't have the intention to use it? Well, we test. <clears throat> it's a good question. I'm glad you asked. We, we test and evaluate all sorts of technologies and products that, if in the wrong hands, can be used against our agents, for example, conducting their operations. So part of it is from a... Uh, a counterintelligence security perspective, we need to know what tools are out there that the bad guys can use against our people. So that's part of why we test and evaluate, because that allows us to inform our own countermeasures and things like that. Representative Quigley. Uh, in 2019, the Director Coates said that Russia and China were more aligned uh, than at any point since the mid-1950s and the relationship is likely to strengthen. Uh, Director Haynes, let me ask you, do you believe that's still the case? Was it more the case before this invasion? Has this changed that calculus? And uh, do we believe that Beijing is looking at this 
uh, as surprised, perhaps, as Putin was of the Western response. Thank you, uh, Representative. I think Director Coates was exactly right. I believe that it continues to be the case that they are getting closer together. We see that across a range of, of sectors, economic, political, security, um, and expect it to continue. I think there's a limit to which it will go, but, um, but nevertheless, that remains a concern. And in terms of the impact of the current crisis, I'd say that it, um, it's not yet clear to me exactly how it will affect the trajectory of their relationship. I think uh, it's clear that, that China has not come out and criticized Russia for their actions, clearly, and yet at the same time, they did abstain, for example, in the context of the UN Security Council resolution and in other uh, scenarios. And it does seem as if um, they are potentially paying a price for not criticizing Russia, and that may have an impact on how this trajectory moves forward. But I think, uh, in general, I think it does continue to the two countries get closer together. And others may have thoughts. All I would add, Congressman, is I think Director Coates was right. And I think, if anything, that relationship, the partnership between Russia and China has strengthened since 2019. I would add, though, that I, I, I think the President Xi and the Chinese leadership are a little bit unsettled by what they're seeing in Ukraine. They did not anticipate uh, the, the significant difficulties the Russians were going to run into. I think they're unsettled by the reputational damage that can come by their close association with President Putin, second by the economic consequences at a moment when you know, they're facing lower annual growth rates than they've experienced for more than three decades. I think they're a little bit unsettled about the impact on the global economy. And third, I think they're a little bit unsettled by the way in which uh, Vladimir Putin has driven Europeans and Americans much closer together. I think they've you know, valued their relationship with Europe um, and valued what they believe to be their capacity to try to drive wedges between us and the Europeans. And so I think that's unsettling for them as well. Mr. Crawford. China is investing billions of dollars, we know, in its domestic uh, semiconductor, semiconductor industry in an attempt to achieve full chip independence by 2050. I'm wondering what the assessment of the likelihood of China fully indigenizing its chip industry by then, what sort of security threats would you assess China's increased chip independence creates, and how can the U.S. and its allies address those threats moving forward? So, Congressman, this is a, a very timely question, and, um, you know, as we look at China increasingly become more indigenous in their production, this has great concern for us. In terms of the, the broader impacts, I, I would like to talk about this a little bit more this afternoon because I, I can provide a a depth, I think, that's uh, very important for us to cover. Okay, thank you. Uh, do you perceive a threat that the Chinese-made chips could also be exported abroad, or is this a topic that you just would rather discuss in the closed setting? General Barrier, some experts have voiced concerns that Russia's invasion of Ukraine could embolden the PRC to pursue a full-scale invasion or military blockade of Taiwan. What's your assessment of the likelihood of a copycat effect, and what more can the U.S. do to prevent the crisis in Ukraine from being repeated in Taiwan? Congressman, I think Taiwan and Ukraine are two different, two different things completely. I also, I also believe that our deterrence posture in the Pacific puts a very different perspective on, on all of this. I, we do know that, that uh, the PRC watching very, very carefully what happens and how this plays out uh, throughout the entire dime. Uh, and and I would address more of this in the closed session. Okay. Um, 
Is there any evidence that other adversaries are taking advantage of global uh, tension on Ukraine to undermine national security in the United States, such as possibly cyber threats? I'm sure that uh, there is a risk out there, and the gentleman to my right will, will no doubt want to answer that, but I, I have not seen specific intelligence that, that tells me that we are under a threat or attack right now. Congressman, I'd concur in terms of not specifically tied to the Ukraine. We have obviously a, a high degree of vigilance right now just for a number of different threat streams that are out there, uh, but they're not necessarily only predicated on what we're seeing with the Ukraine. Okay. If the Iranian regime's leadership secures greater access to cash in the coming months and years, what concerns would you have with respect to Iran's capability to conduct terrorism, destabilize the Middle East, and threaten U.S. forces or uh, our allies and partners? Congressman, I, I think the Iranians have done uh, remarkably well considering the resource constraints that they're under with uh, development of ballistic missiles, unmanned aerial vehicles, and, uh, and uh, destabilizing terrorist actions in the Middle East with the resources that they have. If they require more, if they get more funding, I think the threat becomes even worse. Does Iran continue to be the leading state sponsor of terrorism? And, and if so, do you believe it would be harmful to U.S. national security if terrorism sanctions designations? against Iranian entities are lifted or weakened while such entities continue to engage in terrorism? I think that will be a decision for, for policymakers. We, we continue to see Iranian destabilizing actions. And I was hoping, uh, Director Haynes, you could just speak briefly to uh, what effect we are seeing uh, practically, economically, that the sanctions are already having, knowing that it's going to take a you know, protracted view as far as what the long-term consequences are. Yeah, you should have the Treasury Department, Commerce, and others before you on this question. But I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, the freefall that we've seen the ruble in has been extraordinary. And uh, and one of the things, is, as Director Burns indicated, uh, that's been very interesting about the way this has approached is that, you know, President Putin knew that sanctions were a likely result of an invasion of Ukraine, right, and uh, tried to prepare for it by creating essentially a national wealth fund that would give them the ability to defend their currency and manage some of the sanctions. And we've seen the Duma pass, for example, legislation that's intended to address some of the um, impact of sanctions. And yet the secondary actions that Europe has taken with the United States and that other partners around the world have done, I think really do mitigate essentially their ability to mitigate the impact that's having, that they're having on uh, Russian citizens right now and seeing the kind of impact that you think. Sure. I'd also say that the other factor that we didn't spend as much time analyzing but is clearly important is the commercial piece, the, the commercial decisions that are being made by multinational corporations to actually join in this, I think, is going to have a pretty significant impact. Director Ray, what is your message to the business community knowing that uh, these ransomware attacks could be coming and your field office's ability to work with them and help them uh, if they are uh, a victim? Can you just update us on uh, just what your posture is right now and, and how they could reach out to you uh, if they are attacked? I appreciate the question. Our field offices are in a position uh, where they can have a technically trained agent at the doorstep of any company that's victimized within about an hour anywhere in the country. Uh, and time is of the essence because uh, that's what enables us, in some cases you've seen us be able to claw back and recover the cryptocurrency that's paid in a ransom. It allows us to have a hot trail as investigators to be able to take uh, action to disrupt the ransomware actors. So in order to be able to protect 
the companies, uh, if they reach out, we can, again, we can out in the field, we can have somebody there to help uh, within about an hour. Mr. Castro. You said that the FBI has tested the Pegasus software from the NSO group for counterintelligence purposes. Uh, are you aware of any incidents of the Pegasus software being used by a foreign power against the United States? And if anybody else on the panel has uh, anything to supplement on your answer, uh, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, I'd have to think about whether there's anything I could share here. If I could suggest, let me give a little thought to that, and maybe there's more I can provide on that in closed session this afternoon. I mean, certainly, I think there has been open source reporting about different governments using the technology, but whether it's been used uh, against us, uh, you know, I'd have to think a little bit about that. Um, and I also need to kind of keep straight in my head what I know about NSO from, from uh, classified sources versus what I've... Sure. Heard in open source. Uh, open source intelligence is critically important to helping U.S. policymakers and national security, the national security community navigate our country's role in the world. And it helps us engage with the American public. It informs media that can promote awareness of issues and promotes communication between different policymakers. And today, the reality of what's happening in Xinjiang by China and Ukraine by Russia is laid bare through open source information, often through translated documents. And so my question, Director Burns, is why did the open source enterprise stop publishing translated documents publicly? And will you push the OSE to put out more of their translations publicly? Um, thanks, Congressman. And I know Director Haynes may want to add to this because we've been working um, quite intensively with her and the rest of the intelligence community on open source issues, in part to address the question that you raised. I mean, I agree with you, I think open source information is going to only become more and more important in the years ahead, and then what use we make of that, including making public some translations, I think is only going to grow in importance. Yeah, just to add to what Director Burns has indicated, we, this is an area where we absolutely agree with the fact that it's critical to our work, frankly, and across the enterprise, and uh, DIA has also taken a big lead in this area. and. Essentially, we need to, um, we're, we're going through a process where we're trying to make sure that we're organized effectively so that we can leverage our resources across the community and also that we actually have devoted enough resources to open source. You'll see it, I think, in our uh, budget submissions. The cyber threat from Russia and other nations is very real, including to our critical infrastructure and our defense systems. Uh, simply put, even our most sophisticated weapons with strong, cyber, strong effective cyber attacks can be neutralized and made ineffective. And so my question is about the status of our cyber alliances around the world. How strongly have we developed our cyber alliances both for defense purposes and, if necessary, for offensive purposes in cyberspace? So, Congressman, I, I think that what you've hit on is really the, the key for the future, these series of partnerships that we have. Uh, and we've seen the partnerships. Uh, I sit next to Director Ray, who has been a tremendous partner in our ability to, to get after some of the cybersecurity threats here in our nation. But it's broader than that, as you had indicated. So we have rich, uh, rich partnerships with, obviously, our Five Eyes partners, a series of other partners within both Europe and the Pacific. And as far as the, the work that we do full spectrum, I, I'd like to take that on this afternoon because I think that would be appropriate given the discussions we've had this morning on Russia and the Ukraine. Sure. I, I would just add... Uh, completely agree with General Akasoni, but I would add that just about every significant uh, major takedown that we've engineered together uh, against foreign adversaries, cyber adversaries, whether they be criminal or nation state, almost invariably involve 
a whole slew of foreign partners all acting in concert. Uh, and one of the clear lessons from the last few years is that that is the most effective weapon against cyber adversaries, is joint sequenced operations. Uh, I like to say cyber is sort of the ultimate team sport, uh, and we do that with our foreign partners. Thank you. Mr. Mullen, do we feel like with cybersecurity that we're being risk adverse or being proactive uh, towards Russia and to protecting um, uh, our, our intellectual property here inside the United States? Um, well, I think at the risk of sounding like a lawyer, I think it's a little bit of both. We're obviously being risk averse in one sense as we're trying to help manage the cyber defense side of it and trying to manage risk that sense. But, but proactive in a different sense, which is more and more, as I was just alluding to, we're working together, General Nakasone and we- On, on being risk adverse, I'm just gonna cut in there just a second, because okay. you can't really be risk adverse and be proactive at the same time, because if you're risk adverse and you're not trying, you're, you're afraid to do anything because you don't want to escalate it. But yet, since the threat has already came to us, it seems to me that we should be changing our posture to being very proactive to saying, listen, um, we have tools. If you come after us, we're going to punch you back. So are, are, are we in that area? So in that sense, I think we are leaning further and further in all the time in our efforts to go after our adversaries uh, through a variety of means. Some of what you're getting at is more cyber offense. So we are being better proactive. in General Nakasone's lane. So right. I'll defer to him on that one. But are we, are, so we are being proactive? I just I got another question I want to get to. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But. So, Congressman, this is the, on the cybercom side, this is what we do with persistent engagement every day. This is engaging our adversaries. This is understanding where their infrastructure is, understanding what they're doing, and then keeping tabs on them. Didn't actually say yes on the proactive part. What about with, with the escalation of, of Russia itself? Uh, Director Ray, um, what are we doing to get after the oligarchs in the United States? Uh, can we see some yachts and send some people home? Because we hear stories about uh, the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov traveling with his mistress. We hear about all the properties she owns. We know that these guys live large and they live in our cities and they benefit from uh, their wealth in ways that I think would shock uh, ordinary Americans. Uh, can, you can you tell folks in open session what we're doing to get after that problem? So certainly the oligarchs are an important part of, uh, of Putin's power base and others can speak more to that part of it. Uh, what I would say is that we are working aggressively with our partners both across the intelligence community, across law enforcement, uh, and foreign partners, both security services and law enforcement services to try to hold oligarchs accountable through a variety of means where we can lay hands on them uh, with criminal charges and prosecute them. We want to do that where we can uh, uh, better block the ways in which they try to circumvent sanctions to, uh, to better get after their money. We want to do that where we can seize their assets through a variety of legal tools that we have. We want to do that. Uh, we are on the FBI end uh, blending not just our uh, counterintelligence expertise, but our uh, expertise with transnational organized crime uh, and, of course, our cyber expertise to kind of go after that. And you may have seen recently the Justice Department announced a new uh, task force that's specifically focused on that, and we've already had some charges uh, under that work. Director, are we going to see some yachts? <laughs> I mean, that sounds great. Are we going to see some of this stuff taken out of their hands? I mean, no. I, Whatever we can lawfully seize, we're going to go after. Thank you. I think you have the support of both, both aisles up here to be as aggressive as you can humanly be on that issue. So, Director Haynes, 
how are we going to how are we going to stay focused on China as we as we work this emergency in Ukraine? Yeah. Unquestionably, we are going to stay focused on China, and I agree with you. It is one of those things where the urgent crowds out the important on some level, and we are working very hard to ensure that that does not happen because we recognize the long-term priority is China for us. I think mean, absolutely unparalleled, and I, I know my colleagues are... And, and is it fair to say the resources of the IC... I know a lot of that's classified, but is it fair to say the resources of the IC will, will reflect that in terms yes. of how we budget and how we prioritize? Yes, sir. Uh, for all the witnesses, it's been reported, open source, that a Saudi detainee at Guantanamo Bay, Mohammed Mani Ahmad al-Khatani, who attempted to take part in the 9-11 hijacking plot but later was detained and captured in Afghanistan, is being released from Gitmo into Saudi custody. Can you tell this committee why this individual is being released now and whether or not his release is part of a broader arrangement with Saudi Arabia? Because I also note uh, that I think... President Biden is on his way to Saudi Arabia uh, in the near future. Thank you, sir. I'll start. Uh, as a general matter, um, as you know, it's been the policy of the administration uh, several prior to continue to move forward on um, Guantanamo uh, detainees to review them and then determine if they should be transferred or um, or otherwise. And uh, I understand it to be part of a broader um, trend, essentially, of, of a number of detainees that have been transferred to Saudi Arabia. I don't think it's a new arrangement, at least that I'm aware of. But. Okay. Republicans have been requesting specific data points for nearly a year on the consequences of the dual-hat relationship between U.S. Cybercom and NSA. And I'm hoping you can provide some clarity today. My first question, are the operational requirements of the two organizations in decline, relatively flat, or are they growing? They continue to grow, Congressman. And have dependencies between the two agencies, such as shared infrastructure and capabilities, increased or decreased during the past several years? They've decreased. And have you taken any action to decrease any such dependencies? I have not. Uh, in terms of, and I think this is really designed for the infrastructures that we operate off of, uh, those were decisions prior to mine. I think they were good decisions, and uh, we've carried out you know, separate infrastructures that have been developed for both uh, U.S. Cyber Command and the National Security Agency. Have you taken any action to meet the requirements of Section 1642 of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017 to establish certification requirements for the termination of the dual hat role? So, Congressman, on those uh, conditions, we've continued to operate towards them. Uh, we, we, uh, you know, we've done the things that uh, that we've outlined to make sure that those get done. Uh, as you probably will call, that was. Uh, a part of the NDA that was put in there not necessarily as a precursor to terminate the du dual hat, any kind of a decision like that, but it was intended if there was a decision that these had to be made. Mr. Christian Murthy. Uh, Director Burns, a lot of my constituents think that Putin is crazy or he's playing crazy. Uh, in an open setting, how do you assess Putin's mental state? Um, I think his, his views, Congressman, on Ukraine and a lot of other issues have hardened over the years. I think he's far more insulated from other points of view and people who would challenge or question his, his views. In, in my opinion, that doesn't make him crazy, but it makes him extremely difficult to deal with because of the hardening of his views over time. How do we assess in the last 12 days or two weeks 
uh, his popular support in Russia? I mean, I think this is, this is something we're going to keep a very careful eye on over time. Um, you know, in an environment in which the Russian state media dominates what a lot of people hear about what's going on in Ukraine, it's going to take time, I think, for people to absorb the consequences of the choices that he's made personally. Um, but you do, we, do we see, do we see uh, increasing reports in social media in Russia about the deaths and the KIAs and the casualties mm -hmm. Uh, because obviously they're probably going to hear from the front lines through some means you, about the status of their relatives, correct? You, you do see some of that already. You see funerals in Russia of you know young Russian soldiers who were killed in Ukraine coming home, and that clearly is going to have an impact over time. You also see in relatively small numbers, but a lot of very courageous Russians out on the street protesting, and something like 13 or 14,000 have been arrested since then, which is not a small thing in a deeply repressive society like Russia. With regard to Kyiv, uh, the Russians appear to be attempting to cut off food and water uh, to the city. How much food and water, or how many days or weeks of food and water do the people of Kyiv have at this point? I don't, I don't have a specific number for days of supply that the population has. Uh, but with with supplies being cut off, um, it will become uh, somewhat desperate in, in, I would say, 10 days to two weeks. Wow. Uh, Director Burns, do you think there's any opening whatsoever uh, for us and the Chinese to have a more productive conversation about Taiwan uh, or their malign intentions, given that they may have thrown in their lot with the wrong horse, uh, the Russians at this point? Well, Congressman, I, I would just say analytically, I would not underestimate uh, President Xi and the Chinese leadership's determination with regard to Taiwan. I do think, as Director Haynes said earlier, they've been surprised and unsettled to some extent by what they've seen in Ukraine over the last 12 days, everything from the strength of the Western reaction to the way in which Ukrainians have fiercely resisted to the relatively poor... But you don't see an Russia opening right now for... In Taiwan? Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's an impact on, on the Chinese calculus with regard to Taiwan, which we obviously are going to continue to pay careful attention to. Last question. Uh, the president appears to be uh, considering banning the import of oil from Russia. What impact do we assess that would have on the Russian economy, Director Haynes? Um, I'm trying to think. So it's roughly 8%, I believe, of our crude oil imports overall. And for them, I believe it's a relatively small amount on theirs. But I think it will have some impact on them. And certainly symbolically, it's an important move if that's something that's done. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Fitzpatrick. Uh, if you could just uh, discuss, sir, the importance uh, to have cyber reporting incidents directly uh, to the FBI and not just as a pass-through and also discuss liability protections for companies uh, that do report to the FBI. So no one believes more in the importance of private sector uh, reporting of cyber threat information than I do, uh, and I've been testifying and calling for it you know, for quite some time. It's important, though, that that information flow uh, real time. And as I testified earlier in this hearing, you know, we have agents out in the field who are responding often within an hour or so to a business that's been hit. Uh, and we need to make sure, and that's happening thousands of times a year, 
So we need to make sure that that information flow is protected, namely that the businesses that come forward like that when they talk to the agents out in the field have protection from liability for doing so, uh, and not just reporting through some uh, longer-term means to some bureaucracy somewhere uh, in D.C. Uh, so that, that part has to be taken care of. The second thing is, of course, time matters uh, in these situations. Our agents are using the information that we get from businesses every day to go after the hackers, to seize their cryptocurrency, to take down their infrastructure, to work with General Nakasone and with foreign partners. Uh, just in the last little bit, we've worked, for example, with a, a major healthcare facility to help disrupt an attack before it could switch over to patient care. We've worked with defense contractors to block sensitive information before it got exfiltrated. We've worked with financial institutions to prevent stolen customer, sensitive customer data, terabytes of it, from getting out into the wild. And that kind of thing is happening every day, and we need more and more of that. Uh, and the two things that can help do that are ensuring that, uh, that the companies who come forward to our agents out in the field get the same kind of uh, liability protection that they would for the reporting that we think they should also be doing to CISA. This is not in lieu of CISA. We want them to report to CISA, and the more information CISA gets, the better. Uh, but simultaneous uh, protection for both, and the ability for our agents to use that information, not just to go after the bad guys and their infrastructure and their money, but more importantly, to be able to warn all the next victims. Our ability to do that is directly tied to that flow of information. It, just as Director Ray indicated, I mean, I think we are extremely supportive of the cyber reporting bill, essentially, to CISA, and, and very much see that as saying, I think we also just agree that there is additional uh, reporting that might be done more generally, but I just want you to understand that our support is for the legislation. Okay. I'm aware of at least one major American utility that has a day without cyber, so that all of their employees can try to cope without even smartphones or cell phones. And is, do you think that's a wise practice, or is that overdoing it, to try to have our utilities uh, a hardened target, more protected, so that employees can cope without their usual cyber tools? So, Congressman, I, I hadn't really thought of that as a, as a means, but um, here, here's what I would say. Uh, we're committed to our critical infrastructure to look at ways upon which it must be strengthened. We've done a lot of work in terms of some of the innovative things that both Director Ray and myself and Director Easterly have done with CISA to release unclassified information to be able to ensure that our partners understand it. But I think it begins with just this realization that we have to get better, we have to harden our infrastructure, and we have to have an ability to be more resilient. Director Ray, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, FISA. As you're aware, Section 702 of FISA is scheduled to expire in December of 2023. And I think you know that the FBI's credibility um, with members of Congress when it comes to managing and executing this law is, is dubious at best, um, and I would say in a bipartisan way. Um, last year, as you know, ODNI declassified a FISA court opinion from here in the District of Columbia. Um, and it was Judge Borsberg in, as part of his judicial oversight, um, really uh, just criticized extensively the FBI in the FISA process. And um, Mr. Chairman, just for the record, I'd like to ask unanimous consent that the redacted opinion be made part of the record. Without objection. Um, 
as you know, in that opinion, uh, Judge Boasberg went through um, and detailed the FBI breaches, the illegal activity, the abuse of power, and the blatant failures of this process. And as you know, Director Ray, in the opinion, they, they specifically, the judge highlighted a dozen of FBI queries that were, quote, conducted in support of predicated criminal investigations uh, that accessed Section 702 acquired information. Um, this includes purely domestic activities like healthcare, fraud, bribery, and public corruption that were outside the norms of, of 702. Director Ray, was, was that appropriate conduct? I think the judge's opinion speaks for itself that, that it was not. Uh, I would say that it's important that uh, the court did not find uh, unlawful purpose or bad faith or anything like that, but that doesn't make it any less unacceptable to me. I think the most important thing uh, that I would, uh, would call out here uh, in this kind of setting, and we could obviously have a longer conversation, right. is that the queries at issue, the compliance incidents at issue involved there all predate massive changes that have been made uh, by my, my leadership team and I since then that include all sorts of changes to systems, to training, to safeguards, to policies. Uh, we created a whole new office of internal audit that didn't exist before that's solely focused on FISA compliance. Uh, so I could go on and on about the changes that have been made, but all of those uh, incidents predate all of those fixes. Uh, and I'm highly optimistic uh, that those changes will uh, dramatically, dramatically improve our compliance rate, and you can bet that I am hell-bent on making sure that we do. Just to follow up on the internal mechanisms that you've gone through, um, what were the consequences for FBI personnel that repeatedly violated these compliance um, procedures? I'm not sure that I could cite to you sitting here right now specific, exactly what happened with each specific employee. Again, I think it's important to recognize that the court uh, did not find unlawful purpose or bad faith uh, by anybody involved, uh, did find that they had not complied with uh, the standards and the processes. And so, as I said, we've had significant changes that involve mandatory training and counseling to all sorts of individuals. Um, We've got the new Office of Internal Audit. We've built in uh, systems changes that make it harder for people to run queries. Uh, we've got additional supervisory approval, et cetera. And so I guess my last point is, in terms of what you're doing, what are the metrics or benchmarks we ought to be looking at that you're being successful? Well, I think part of what you should, there are a number of mechanisms of oversight that exist on Section 702. Uh, and, and of course, now we have a new one, namely this Office of Internal Audit. Uh, but in addition to that, you have the Justice Department's uh, National Security Division. Uh, you have the court's own review processes. Uh, and so my strong expectation is that all of these efforts that we've undertaken over the last 18 months or so uh, should dramatically reduce the rate of, uh, of compliance incidents. Uh, and I am assured by other stakeholders in the process that they too are optimistic, meaning outside the FBI, that they too are optimistic that these changes will have that effect. I take your point about our educating uh, both the committee and others about all these reforms, uh, and it's good advice, and we will look at how we can better engage with the committee to walk you through it. Of course, these are changes that take a little bit of time and effort to walk people through. They don't 
uh, unfortunately lend themselves to uh, you know a short exchange in, in an open hearing. But but you're absolutely right. Uh, I think it's the burden is on us to to walk you all through it uh, because you do understand just how important a tool this is. This is the tool that we use more and more these days to identify cyber victims and get out and warn them. This is the tool we use to go after foreign intelligence services, the MSS uh, and the Russian intelligence services, the Iranians and their increasingly brazen activity. This is the tool that we're going to need more and more, not less and less, over the next five years as the terrorist landscape with the withdrawal in Afghanistan, with the degeneration uh, in Ethiopia involving al-Shabaab, I could go on and on, but just about every threat that you've heard about, to the extent that it affects the homeland from overseas, 702 is going to be the tool that protects us. So we want to make sure that we give you all uh, and the rest of the Congress the information you need to get comfortable. Uh, but I, I cannot stress enough how important a tool it is and how committed my leadership team and I are to making sure that the reforms that we've put in place have the effect that you rightly expect from us. Thank you. Representative Speer. He, he clearly wants to recreate the Soviet Union and pick up all the, the Balkan states. Why are we somehow reluctant to recognize that he's willing to go as far as he needs to go? Well, Congresswoman, I think you know, Putin's actions, especially in the last two weeks, and they have been premeditated and they have been savage, just as you described, I think should remove any doubt about you know, the depth of his determination, not just with regard to Ukraine, but in terms of you know, he, how he exercises Russian power. I would, however, say that what he's been met with since then, first and foremost by Ukrainians themselves and their courage and their heroism and the strength of their leadership, um, has surprised and unsettled him. I think he's been unsettled by the Western reaction and allied resolve, particularly some of the decisions the German government has taken. Um, I think he's been unsettled by the performance of his own military. I guess, excuse me for interrupting, sure. but do you, knowing as much as you know about him, he's not going to stop at Ukraine, correct? Well, I think that's what makes it um, more important than ever to demonstrate that he's not going to succeed in Ukraine. Um, and, and I think that's what the challenge is uh, for all of us, because what's at stake is more as important as Ukraine's sovereignty is, what's at stake is more than that. It's about an incredibly important uh, rule in international order that big countries don't get to swallow up small countries just because they can. And I think this is one of those pivotal points where we and all of our allies and partners need to act on that, and okay. I think that's what we're doing. Russia has not really engaged in a lot of cyber warfare to date in Ukraine. Um, can you indicate why not, based on your estimation? And should we be prepared in the United States for that to be one of his next actions against us? Congressman, let me start with the last part of your question, which is, yes, definitely. We, we have to be prepared for the Russians and any other threat that would, uh, would try to put us at risk in cyberspace. In terms of uh, Russia, they have conducted several attacks in the Ukraine. Uh, three or four upon which we've watched and, and uh, we've tracked very carefully. Uh, in terms of why they haven't done more, I, I think that that's obviously some of the work that the Ukrainians have done, some of the, the challenges that, that the Russians have uh, um, uh, encountered, and, and some of the work that, that others have been able to, to prevent uh, their actions. And so it has not been um, 
what, what we would anticipate when we were going into this several weeks ago. Can we now say that uh, Putin has conducted himself in a manner that he has created war crimes? Do we have evidence? I'm sure General Barrier can answer that much more effectively. I, Representative, I don't know that we have direct evidence besides what we see on social media, certainly the bombing of schools and, and facilities that are not associated with the Ukrainian, Ukrainian military would indicate to me that he's stepping up right to the line if, if he hasn't done so already. All right. A related question, do, you, do the Russians believe that they have leverage over us because of the ongoing negotiations over Iran's nuclear program in Vienna? Um, I don't think the Russians, uh, right now they're so preoccupied in Ukraine, I don't think they exaggerate the influence or the leverage that they have. I mean, you know, over the years, and we'll see what happens now, given the depth of, you know, division over Ukraine, but, you know, what's been remarkable over a number of years is the extent to which they've contributed to those negotiations. Now, it remains to be seen whether that's going to continue, but up until this point, that's been the case. So then do you view uh, what's the lead negotiator? Is it Ulyanov? Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing Ulyanov, that. Yeah. Bragging that he swindled us in Vienna, is that just mere bluster? More to the point, Lavrov demanding that no sanctions with respect to Ukraine impede their ability to do business with Iran going forward? That, should we view that as bluster then? No, I take that seriously. I mean, it's, it's something we have to take seriously as well, and, and I don't think we can just assume that that's bluster. Um, but uh, So, no, that's something we can't minimize. Maybe to put it a little bit differently, would it be have the negotiations with Iran over their nuclear program been affected by any other issues, such as the sudden need to uh, backfill Russian oil supplies on the global market, or the remarkable fact that one of our P5 plus one partners has made the sudden decision to arm Ukraine. Have the negotiations been affected in any way by those developments? Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not involved directly in the negotiations, Congressman, but I don't think they have. I think this is being done on the merits uh, about, you know, whether it makes sense from the point of U.S. national interests to go back into the JCPOA, recognizing, as I said earlier, we got lots of other problems posed by this Iranian regime, quite apart from the nuclear issue as well. We're going to continue to cooperate with Iran on the P5, I mean, with Russia on the P5 plus one negotiations over Iran's nuclear program. Well, those two things don't necessarily add up. Now, I get diplomacy is complex. You've literally written the book on it. And, you know, we have to manage multiple crises. But it seems obvious to me that the Russians are at least trying, in a public narrative, if nothing else, to connect the two issues, though you have just said that they remain unconnected, if that makes sense. Now, what I said, Congressman, is, is, you know, from the point of view, as I understand it, of our approach to the negotiations, they're not connected. We're doing this on the merits with regard to the Iranian nuclear issue. How the Russians try to play that question of leverage that you mentioned is a genuine concern. We have to pay careful attention to that. And then quickly, going to the question of the lessons that... Um, China might derive from the Ukraine crisis uh, with respect to Taiwan. You've both said that they, uh, or at least Director Burns, you said, I think Director Hanson said the same, that they are unsettled by what they've seen in Ukraine. And you laid out an argument for that. But is that, is your assessment that they're unsettled, is that based on any information we have? Or is that just based on your, your experts sort of projecting? 
Well, I mean, it's assessment based on how our experts see this, but I'd be glad in the other session to okay. talk a little bit more I about that. very much look forward to that. Director Haynes, the New York Times reported that over a three-month period, senior administration officials shared U.S. intelligence with the Chinese related to Russians, uh, Russia's troop buildup in Ukraine, and then the Chinese then shared that information with Moscow. Have we done a, a damage assessment uh, of, of our, our, our decision to share that intelligence with, with the Chinese? I don't know about the article that you're talking about. We shared, obviously, information with NATO and with our European allies and other partners around the world. Um, it, what we shared, to the extent we shared much with China, was not something we expected would not be handed over. Does the IC uh, community believes that Putin's heinous assault on democracy empowers the people of the not-free countries to challenge authoritarian leaders, or do you believe it empowers those leaders uh, to double down? So I think that from our perspective, um, Putin's approach to cracking down essentially on dissent and on civil society in Russia certainly is looked upon by others who may wish to do the same as a kind of a model for how to do it in many respects. And so I think in that sense, uh, you know, it is likely that others learn from that. Um, I hope that the heroic resistance that we see in Ukraine and that our efforts to really expose President Putin for who he is and for the choices that he's made uh, help to promote um, and empower populations to speak up in dissent from such authoritarian efforts. But I, I make sure that mm -hmm. questions others would like to add to this. Director Burns? Oh, I, I think I was someone, just as Director Haynes said, this depends on how this turns out. I mean, I think if, if uh, Ukrainians demonstrate um, the hollowness of what Putin and Putinism represent, um, then I think it sends a very strong message. I think if the Western resolve that we've seen in response to this um, helps to demonstrate to people the resilience of democracies at a time when there's been lots of speculation about them not being so strong and not so resilient. I think that carries a message that goes even beyond, you know, what's unfolding in Ukraine today. So that's really what's at stake. And does the IC um, observe the anti-democratic heads of state in Latin America amplifying Russia's malign influence messaging in the region designed to sow distrust uh, in the U.S.? Is that a part of their, their plan? I think, as your question indicates, um, many countries in Latin America, and as our assessment indicates, are essentially under pressure, economic pressure, political pressure, a variety of different forms of pressure, and as a consequence are being forced to make decisions about whether or not they accept what is frequently an open hand from Russia or China, but with a price tag, essentially. Um, for a variety of different uh, projects that might be useful to those leaders in the context of their work, but nevertheless are expected to buy influence, in effect, within their countries. And so we do see that. Do you believe the use of surveillance technology is likely to increase in Latin America for the same purpose? I think the likelihood of surveillance technology to increase around the world is likely. Okay, thank you. Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. I just have one follow-up question. Um, to what degree, Dr. Haynes or anyone, uh, are you concerned that the Russians may use cryptocurrency to evade sanctions? What capacity is there to, 
do that. Yeah, we've seen, obviously, cryptocurrency is a concern in relation to trying to avoid sanctions. And I think there may be some of that. We should get you an assessment so that you get an educated perspective from the analyst. But I think uh, our assessment generally has been that it would be challenging for them to be effective at completely undermining the sanctions using cryptocurrency. With that, I thank you, and we will see you in closed session shortly. We're adjourned. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.